It's really good to be here today, and I'm glad you're here too. Uh, this morning, we're wrapping up our series on First and Second Thessalonians in the Bible. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to start by sharing something that was recently brought to my attention. It's something in the Bible that I've never noticed before. Now, I've read the Bible a lot over the years, and that kind of goes along with being a preacher. Uh, but I was also the son of a preacher. So from a very early age, I've been exposed to a lot of Scripture. But I'm always amazed, no matter how much I learn from the Bible, I've always got so much more to learn. Pretty frequently, I'll hear someone preach or teach on a passage that I've read maybe dozens of times. Then this person will point out a, an idea or a lesson that it, it's clearly there, but I've never seen it. I've never noticed it before. Now, you might have heard me mention a preacher named Tim Keller, and he wrote a book about prayer called, appropriately, Prayer. But the, there's a section of this book that kind of blew me away. Keller is talking about the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's talking about Paul's letters that he wrote that are in the New Testament, letters like Galatians, Ephesians, and First and Second Thessalonians. But Keller says, whenever Paul prays for his friends, he never asks that God would change their circumstances. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting because for most of us, a majority of our prayers are about that very thing. We're, we're asking that God would fix a problem or heal a disease or repair a relationship or alleviate pain somehow. But listen to this quote from Keller. He says, It is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. It's certain that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. They faced persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours is today. Yet in these prayers... You see not one petition for a better emperor or for protection from marauding armies or even for bread for the next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods we would usually have near the top of our list of requests. So now, what do you make of that quote? Uh, Tim Keller is absolutely right. Uh, I hadn't noticed it before, but that's, that's what Paul's praying for. He, he's not praying for the things that, that we usually pray for. So, does that mean it's a bad thing for us to ask God to change our circumstances? Well, of course not, because Jesus gave us the model for prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And, and, and in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said we should ask that God give us our daily bread and deliver us from evil. So, Paul's not giving us the model for prayer. Jesus did that. But there's still an important lesson here. You see, Paul had a habit of praying for what he saw as the top priorities for his friends. And, and that should make you ask, okay, well, what were those things? Well, I'll give you an example. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's writing to these Christians, Christians in the city of Ephesus, and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So do you see the top priority here? Paul says, 
What I really want for you guys and what I keep praying for is that you will know God better. Because right now, your picture of Him, your understanding of Him, it's incomplete or it's off in some areas, which is, is of course, natural because we're only human. We can't understand God, but Paul says, man, if you could know Him better, that's going to make all the difference. A couple chapters later in Ephesians, he prays that, that these people would grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Jesus. He's praying that they'll know His love and experience His love because the more they can do that, the more they'll be equipped to handle any circumstances, good or bad. So honestly, that's kind of a wake-up call for me because it's very easy for me to seek God because I want Him to solve a problem for me or I want Him to give me something. But in the deeper part of my soul, that's not what I really want. At the end of the day, my soul is not longing for comfortable circumstances. I've experienced comfort plenty of times, but that doesn't lead to long-term satisfaction or fulfillment. My soul's deepest longing is the same as yours. We long for God Himself. We long for Jesus. So here's the logical conclusion. And we may not like this, but it's true. If my discomfort or or even my suffering leads to a greater knowledge of Jesus or a deeper relationship with Jesus, then God may choose to let me go through a difficult season for a while. It's kind of like this. Uh, Sometimes our kids get sick. Sometimes we have to give them medicine. Sometimes they don't like the flavor of the medicine. And they may look up at us and say, why are you doing this to me? I hate this stuff. And, and we know we don't do this to you because we want to see you uncomfortable. We do this because we love you. We want to see you healthy. And so God looks at us and he says, I see you. I see what you're going through, but I'm not going to intervene right now because there's a higher purpose here. No, God does not like to see us in pain. In the long run, God wants to remove our pain forever. He has a plan to do just that. But here in this world, here in this life, pain removal is not the highest goal. The most important thing Jesus can give us is Jesus. Now, I say all this because it perfectly sets up the conclusion of this series. For the past several weeks, we've been walking through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. We didn't cover every verse in that letter, but we did hit on a lot of the main themes And if you've heard these messages, you may remember some of the things we've talked about. Uh, We talked about the backstory that that Paul and his companions came to this city of Thessalonica, which is in the northern part of modern Greece, and they started a new church there. But then shortly after this church started, uh, they got some resistance from a group of people who were not at all excited about Christianity moving into town. And this hostile group started to harass and even persecute these Christians. And it got so bad that Paul just had to leave the area. Sometime later, Paul finds himself down south in the city of Corinth where he's planting a new church. And while he's there, Paul gets this glowing report that the Thessalonian church is doing great. And he's so excited that he he sits down and he writes a letter to check in with them. So let's do a quick review of some of the themes that show up in the first letter. 
One of those themes was encouragement. Uh, Paul gives these new Christians kind of a virtual high five, like, way to go, way to keep hanging in there, uh, even though you're going through hard times, even though you're being persecuted. He also told them to keep living differently than the surrounding culture. He said, don't participate in the sinful behavior that you used to take part in before you became followers of Jesus. Paul also talked about the end times. He answered some questions the Thessalonians had about the return of Jesus. Some of them were concerned because a few church members had recently died. And that brought up the question, well, what's going to happen to them? Uh, What's going to happen? Will our friends and family miss out on the second coming? And so Paul reassures them. He says, no, when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. They're not going to miss out on anything. And then those who are still alive in Christ will be reunited and will meet Jesus in the air and then will live with him forever. And then last week we covered the final chapter of this letter, chapter 5. And that's where Paul tells the Thessalonians, hey, don't focus on the timing of the second coming. Don't try to set dates and all that. That causes more problems than it solves. Just focus on being ready for the second coming. So we finished 1 Thessalonians last week, and now where does that leave us today? It leaves us with the sequel, 2 Thessalonians. And not long after that first letter Paul wrote, he, he follows up with a second letter. Remember, Paul really loved these people, so he wanted to stay connected to them. He wanted to help them however he could. And and like I said, Paul wrote that first letter when he was down in Corinth, and and these two cities were far enough apart that Paul could not easily travel to Thessalonica to visit and, and check on them. I mean, it would take over a week to walk from one city to the other. But somehow it looks like Paul got some periodic updates about how the Thessalonians were doing. And we don't know exactly how much time passes between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but best we can tell, Paul is addressing some recent developments that came up after the first letter. So, what had happened since the writing of 1st Thessalonians? Well, by and large, these Christians were still hanging in there. They were staying faithful to Christ but there were also some problems. Um, That was a big reason for Paul to write them again. He's trying to help them deal with these problems. 2 Thessalonians is a shorter letter. It's only got three chapters, and it breaks down very logically. Each of the three chapters deals with one specific problem the church was facing. And we're not going to be able to cover this whole letter in one sermon, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus primarily on 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll see how Paul dealt with the first of these three problems. But then we're also going to take a look at Paul's prayers throughout the entire letter because those prayers will teach us a lot. This morning, I want to pay close attention to what Paul did pray for, but I also want to notice what he did not pray for. So let's jump into chapter 1. Paul begins with a greeting that's it's similar to uh, how he starts pretty much all his letters. But we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Paul writes, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now, in general, Paul's tone is very positive here. 
He's feeling thankful and grateful because overall, this church is spiritually healthy. Uh, Their faith in Jesus is growing, their love is increasing, and Paul is going around bragging to other churches about how the Thessalonian Christians are, are just thriving. But despite that positivity, there's, there's a big problem. Apparently, the persecution seems to have intensified instead of letting up. Now, like I said, we don't know how much time has passed between letter one and letter two, but when you're, per, when you're being persecuted, any amount of time can feel very long. I'm sure these Christians were asking, God, when is this going to end? When, when are we going to catch a break? But as Paul goes on here, he doesn't give any indication that relief is coming soon. Instead, he says something kind of curious. Look at verse 5. He says, all this, this uh, perseverance that you have going through the fire, this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, if you are being persecuted... This is probably not the message that you want to hear, Uh, but Paul's making a significant point. Uh, Paul is saying that your suffering is an indication that you are a part of God's kingdom. And and let's acknowledge something right off the bat. That statement uh, probably seems a little strange to many of us. Why would suffering be an indication that you are a part of God's kingdom? Why uh, wouldn't we expect God to bless the people in His kingdom? Why would we expect pain and suffering? Well, we sort of hit on this earlier, didn't we? Sometimes God allows us to go through trials, and even if God didn't cause our pain, He may have a higher purpose for it. And we struggle with this idea because it runs completely counter to our modern mindset. But in the New Testament, The early Christians actually considered it a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. You can look at a passage like 1 Peter chapter 4, which says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So do you see the logic there? It's it's a person who's saying, hey, I I know how much Jesus suffered for me. He was beaten, he was rejected, and and he was killed. He died so that I would have the chance to live, so that I would have uh, the, the promise of eternal life. So whenever I'm being persecuted, whenever I suffer on his behalf, that's a way for me to, to show my love and appreciation to him. Now, all this may seem kind of foreign to us for two reasons. Number one, we don't have a lot of real persecution in this country. And number two, we live in a culture that places a high value on comfort. I mean, we're surrounded uh, with air conditioning and constant entertainment and delicious food and all these luxuries. We've made it our goal to pursue pleasure and avoid suffering. So, is there anyone in our time who willingly makes the decision to suffer for the cause of Christ? Or was this just a a first century type of thing? Well, no, it's not just something from the past. Many Christians today are following this New Testament pattern. 
You just might have to look in a country where the church is being persecuted. Uh, the nation of India would be one place to look. Plum Creek supports two missions in India. One is called Bethlehem Living Water, and you may, may recognize the name J. Henry as the missionary who started that ministry. Jay is actually going to be at Plum Creek next Sunday, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But the second ministry we support is called Central India Christian Mission, or CICM. And Ajay Lal is the leader of this ministry. Here's a picture of Ajay with his wife, Indu. Now, I mention Ajay because I'm his friend on Facebook, and he will often share about the persecution they face in his country. Just a few days ago, Ajay posted a message that I want to read to you. He said, we would appreciate your prayers. We are continuously attacked on social media by an extremist group saying really dirty things about our mission and family. Today, they have mentioned my name twice to be involved in anti-Hindu activities using really hateful language. They're trying to create a a hateful atmosphere for us in our city. And then listen to this. Today, they even wrote... Why are we even allowing them to live? We're in contact with our government leaders to stop all this. However, above all, we are praying, knowing that he is in control. Now, put yourself in Ajay's shoes. If you knew that coming here to worship today meant that people would spread lies about you, that they would threaten your well-being, would you still show up? Now, most of us have never had to deal with that question because we're blessed to live in this country with an amazing amount of freedom. But in a place like India, persecution against Christians is common. Uh, This week, I I heard about another minister with CICM, a man named Nanu. And we have a picture of Nanu with one of the 19 churches he started. Nanu believes that God has called him to share the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible. But what do you do when preaching the gospel puts your own safety, your own life at risk? Nanu tells the story that on one occasion, a large crowd of Hindu extremists surrounded his house, and they began shouting, and and they demanded, if you don't stop preaching, we will kill you. You know what Nanu did? First, he cried, and I don't blame him. The whole situation was terrifying. Nanu said that was his low point. He was very discouraged, but then he prayed, and he said, God gave me strength, and I kept on preaching. Nanu has been preaching for 18 years now, and he's seen God do some amazing things. He's seen many people open their eyes to the truth and give their lives to Jesus, Nanu is 49 years old now, and he says, at this stage of life, I have decided I will continue to preach. No matter what situation comes to me or what happens to me, I will keep preaching. I will keep going to the areas that are unreached. I will preach till the last breath of my life for the sake of other people's lives and for the sake of the gospel. When I read something like that, I feel like I should just sit down right now. It's amazing to see people like Nanu and Ajay and Indu and Jay Henry just persevering in the face of that persecution. They just don't stop. 
They keep serving Jesus despite the resistance, despite the opposition, despite the threats. Now, here in the U.S., we don't need to feel guilty that we've been blessed with the freedom we have, but we sure don't want to take it for granted either. We should be grateful and thankful to God every day. We should also lift up our brothers and sisters in places like India. We should pray for them consistently And we should praise God for their example because there may come a day when we need to follow their lead. Now, if you're like me and you have a sense that you need to grow in this area, I really want to encourage you to be here next Sunday. Uh, Like I said, Jay Henry will be at Plum Creek and and he and I are going to preach a tag team sermon as we start a new series going through the life of Job. And as we study Job... We're going to learn more about how to hold on to our faith during difficult times. And Jay will be sharing some of the lessons he's learned firsthand over in India. And if you want to go deeper and learn even more about what God is doing in this country, uh, you can also attend a special presentation about Bethlehem Living Water. This is next Sunday. It will be offered two times, once at 8 a.m. and then again at 9 a.m. Both of the presentations will be in room 102 and 103, just on the other side of that wall over there. But if you had to guess, what would you say is the secret here? What's the secret to following Jesus even in the midst of hard times? What's the secret to, to persevering when it gets tough? Well, we looked at Paul's point about suffering as evidence that you're a part of God's kingdom, but he goes on and he makes another point. Let's, let's read verse 6. He says, God is just. and He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So, God will not let this unfair treatment go on forever. Justice will come when Jesus returns. In the long run, those who showed cruelty to God's people will be paid back for what they've done. And Paul goes on for several verses elaborating and emphasizing this point because he knows this promise of justice will bring hope to his readers. It's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten them. He's not ignoring them. He sees their pain, sees their suffering. And Paul's saying, Jesus will return. And when he does, he will set things right. So hold on to the hope that he's coming back. It's a good thing for the Thessalonian Christians to hear, but it's also good for us to hear, isn't it? Then Paul closes this chapter with a prayer. He writes, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. So, this goes back to that wake-up call I mentioned earlier. Um, Remember, Paul's talking about persecution here. He closes this section with a prayer, but what does he pray for? He doesn't pray that the persecution would stop. He he doesn't pray for their surrounding circumstances to change. Instead, Paul asks that God would use their suffering to bring about character change. Now, isn't that kind of shocking? 
It may be to many of us, but, but really, this is another one of those concepts that shows up all over the New Testament. In places like Romans and James and 2 Peter, we see that God uses perseverance, endurance, suffering. He uses those things in the maturing process to make us more like Jesus. And Paul recognizes, hey, You Thessalonians, you're in the middle of a golden opportunity here. You're being refined by fire. And once you come through the other side of this, God will have shaped you to be more like Jesus, and that's just going to bring Him more glory. Now, if I was a a first-century believer in Thessalonica, I might be thinking, hey, Paul, I'm all for character development, but could you pray that God would find a different way to help me grow as a person? But again, we have to remember, God does not want to see us suffer. He's a good father. He gives good gifts to his children. He takes no pleasure in our pain. At the same time, though, God's list of priorities often looks very different than our list. And I believe that Paul learned to prioritize the same things God sees as important. That's why Paul prayed for the things he prayed for. So that's chapter 1, and there's no way we can cover all three chapters of 2 Thessalonians in depth this morning. But we can take a quick look at Paul's prayers in the rest of this letter. I've said that each of these chapters deals with a specific problem in the church. And in chapter 2, the problem was this. Somebody claimed that Paul said the day of the Lord had already come. They thought, maybe Jesus came back and we missed it. Now, that rumor was wildly inaccurate, of course. Jesus had not returned, and Paul never said he did in the first place. So, in this chapter, Paul describes several things that will happen before the return of Christ. And this chapter has been notoriously difficult to interpret. Paul says, the day of the Lord will not arrive until someone called the man of lawlessness has been revealed. And this man of lawlessness is a mysterious figure. Uh, Some people believe this is the same person as the Antichrist in the book of 1 John or the beast in the book of Revelation. And we're not going to get into those complicated issues at all right now because Paul's main point here is pretty simple. In in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says that evil will continue to spread in this world until it is overcome by Jesus once and for all. That's the bottom line. In other words, if it looks like evil is still winning, then the day of the Lord has not yet come. And that's helpful information, isn't it? Because things may be getting worse, but that's not the end of the story. We can keep coming back to that hope that Jesus will set things right. So in light of this particular problem and in light of Paul's main point, what does he pray at the end of chapter 2? Well, let's read it. Verse 16, Paul prays, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So here, Paul asks that God would give them encouragement and strength. He knows that things will likely get worse before they get better. So what would the Thessalonians need? Well, they would need courage and they would need strength. And it's the same thing for us, of course. If we're going to persevere in following Jesus, we also need courage and we need strength. So these are the kinds of things we should be praying for each other. 
Okay, very briefly, let's look at Paul's prayer in the final chapter of this letter. At this point, Paul confronts a completely different problem. Several people in the church were choosing to be lazy and idle, despite being taught otherwise. It was kind of a weird phenomenon. People had quit their jobs, and they were just mooching off the goodwill of those who were working hard and earning their keep. Now, why were these people acting this way? That's a good question, and scholars have several different theories. Some think it was simple laziness, but others believe these people were looking for the return of Jesus in the very, very near future. Like, it could happen today or tomorrow or, or next week, but certainly not years from now. And if the second coming was just about to happen, well, then why go to work? But Paul had to set them straight. His point in this chapter is that followers of Jesus should work hard all the way until the second coming. So don't quit your jobs. Don't be unproductive. Don't refuse to support yourself. Uh, Unless you have a legitimate excuse, you should hold down a job, provide for yourself, for your family, and, and you should be diligent in doing the work of the church. That's the point here. And if we take this letter as a whole, we see that Paul just keeps telling the Thessalonians to persevere. Uh, Perseverance is is one of the main themes, not only of 2 Thessalonians, but also 1 Thessalonians, right? He says, stay committed to working. Uh, Stay uh, committed to to be strong in the face of persecution. Uh, Stay different from that sinful culture that surrounds you. Stay faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. And what's going to help you persevere? Well, that may be the number one theme in these letters. Followers of Jesus persevere by holding on to hope. And where does that hope come from? Where do we find it? Well, our hope is found in Jesus Himself. Above all else, what we really need is Jesus Himself. So when we pray for each other, this should be the number one priority. Yes, it's great when uh, we're physically healthy, and it's great when we experience financial blessings and favorable circumstances, but those aren't the things that matter most. This is the top priority. Uh, let's, let's look at that uh, prayer of Paul at the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way, the Lord be with all of you. So you see the significance of that? Uh, Paul asks that God would give them peace through Jesus, not a peace that's dependent on comfort or, or good circumstances, a, a peace that transcends understanding. It may not make sense based on what you're going through. Why would you have peace? But through Jesus, it's possible. So, Let's pray for that, for each other, that God would give us the peace that only comes from the presence and power of our Messiah. Above all else, what we really need is Jesus Himself. Let's pray. Father, there are so many ways where we don't see things quite the way You see them, and we don't understand your plans, and your purposes. And we just, we just want our pain to go away. We want to get past a difficult season. 
and get to where things are comfortable and fun and we're just, you know, enjoying life. And I realize that uh, sometimes you have a higher purpose and, and you allow us to go through these challenges, these difficult times, because you're working out something in us and you're bringing us toward an even greater future than we could imagine. So, Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to endure. Help us to hold on to hope. Help us to trust that you are good, that your plans are better than our plans. Help us to have the peace that only comes from knowing Jesus. Lord, I pray that for every person here. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.